It is good to be back with you. In a lot of ways, it still feels like home. Um, in some ways, it doesn't because we've been overseas for four years now. But um, one of the reasons why it feels still so close to our hearts is because you guys have held the ropes for us in such amazing ways. Um, I feel like when I was on staff here for about 10 years, you were serving in the midst of a big hug, you know, a Dave Owen hug or a Mike Mahaffey hug. That's what it felt like. You were just loved on by everyone, by every direction. And uh, what I've noticed is moving overseas to Central Asia is that your arms just keep getting bigger. It's like Inspector Gadget, you know, go, go Gadget arms and you've reached us over there and we still feel like we're in the, the bubble. We call it the love bubble in Central Asia. Um, and we, the Providence Love Bubble, and we, we boast about how you support us through George and the team, through prayer groups, through uh, Sunday school classes, life classes, and just you guys, we are so thankful um, that we haven't really left you, even though we've been sent out from you. So thank you. This morning, we're going to be in the book of Romans. So if you are new to Providence, or maybe this is your first time, there's a Bible underneath the chair in front of you. We're going to be on page, let's see, what page is it? 939. Um, So if you want to make your way to Romans, and I want to come alongside your study of Romans and just put one big banner word over your study, and it's the word somehow. Because I think this book is geared toward your global engagement. This book shows you the glories of the gospel so that you might take those glories to the world that needs the gospel. This church was on the verge of fragmenting, and Paul writes to refocus them on the task before us, the sacred task that's been entrusted to us, to not only reach our neighbors, but to reach the nations. So let's pray, and then we'll read Romans chapter 1. Father, I thank you for this church, and I thank you for how their faith is, being, is growing and enlarging and being proclaimed among the world. And I praise you, my heart is filled with gratitude right now for this church. And I pray for this moment, this morning, that you would, by your grace, just like you gave a grace to the church at Thessalonica, that when they heard the words from the apostles, they accepted it not as the word of men, but as your word. God, I pray for that same grace, that I would disappear, my voice would disappear, and your voice through your word would become so clear. You would convict us, you would send us, you would change us, Lord. Change the world by changing us this morning. We thank you for the grace that you've showed us in Christ Jesus, and pray that he would be honored during our time. In Jesus' name, amen. I know David preached this passage a few weeks ago, and so I hope that message is still fresh on your mind and heart. But we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, and I'm going to use that to show a little bit more about the book of Romans in hopes that we might have this sense of somehow, this urgency to get the task done. Verse 8, Paul writes to the church at Rome, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. 
That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The first aspect of this text that comes to the foreground as you read it is this this global compulsion of Paul. The gospel compels our global engagement. Look, how, look at the word, how he expresses it in verse 10. He wrote there, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. Somehow, somehow Paul had to get this good news to Rome and encourage the brothers and sisters in it and reap a harvest in Rome among the unreached that hadn't heard the good news yet. So this, this somehow was really his mindset about getting to Rome. And we learn in chapter 15 that for many years he had tried to get to Rome. This wasn't a passing desire. If we saw, you know, looking back on his planners, he, you see Rome written in and you see a cross through it. Because he never got there. He hadn't gotten there yet. But he yearned. This was a stubborn desire. He refused to give up until he would get there. And we learn in chapter 15 that he didn't just want to stay in Rome, but he wanted to be sent by the churches in Rome to Spain. Now, why Spain? No one had taken the good news of the gospel to Spain. No one had preached the gospel in Spain. The people of Spain had never heard of the name of Christ. So if you saw a map of the unreached peoples in Paul's day, Spain would be highlighted as unreached. And since Paul's day until now, by God's grace, Spain has many believing Christians in it. And so it's been checked off of that list by and large. But many people groups and many ethnic entities in our world today still remain in that category of unreached. So Paul would look at Rome and just somehow he had to get to Rome because somehow Spain had to hear. If you look at our world today, you would see this map of where 3 billion people live that have little or no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our modern day Spain. See, if you live among these people, you do not have the internal resources or the amount of Christians inside your ethnic group to give you a significant chance to hear the name of Christ, to be included in the salvation that God offers. I don't know if you heard that number, but just let it settle in for a minute that that's nearly three billion. 260 million of the people in this area of the world don't even have a single word of Scripture or a Jesus film in their language. That's almost like plopping an America population, the population of America, right in the middle without any access, without any word from God. 
Now, I live in a city of four to five million people, depending on what you count. And if we take the percentage of believers in our city and relate that proportionally to the population of Raleigh, there would be about 30 believers in all of Raleigh. That's one life class to reach the city. And if you're not a coworker or a neighbor or a friend or a family member of that, those 30 people, it is very unlikely that you will ever hear the good news of Jesus Christ. If sin and death were like an outbreak of a deadly virus, the remedy doesn't presently have an inroad. It doesn't presently have a chance of getting to you. you. You wouldn't even know there was a remedy. You might not even know how deep your problem really is. And the remedy from within has no way of reaching you. So someone from the outside must be concerned about you and come in and bring that good news to you. That's what unreached means. The reason why Raleigh's not unreached is because you're here. And the assumption is that you're sharing with your neighbors and declaring this gospel to the good news, to, to those who have never heard it, maybe here even. But Paul also uses this word somehow for another people in the book of Romans. You don't have to turn there. It's going to be up on the screen. But in chapter 11, look what he writes there about his own people, Israel. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow, there it is, somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. He somehow had to get to Spain. He had to get to Rome, but he also had to get to his own people. Paul was a man. He was a man torn between the people on the edges of the unreached and the people back home who had not been reached by the good news. His prayers, his concerns, his planning, his methods, his, his, consu- his scheming. He felt constrained. He felt compelled. The gospel compelled this global engagement. And I don't know if one thing struck me from that verse, that jealousy is an odd method to to try and use as a platform to bring your people into this good news. But Paul was a man of the book. And he quoted actually a verse in chapter 10 of Romans from the book of Isaiah, which is in his Old Testament, our Old Testament. And there God promised that he would use jealousy. He says here, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. God promised to use jealousy as a means by which he would reach Israel. So Paul aligned his ministry among those who were not a nation, the Gentiles, us, those who are not of Jewish descent. He aligned his ministry among them to, in order, among the Gentiles in order to stir up jealousy because he knew that's the means by which God would reach his own people. So the Bible, the vision of the Bible for ministry both compelled him and confined him. This somehow doesn't mean that he used any method possible. It means that he used any biblical method possible and a lot of harm has been done in the world in the name of missions by not being careful and i know we're a church that thinks well and i praise god for that we read books like when helping hurts and we want to be discerning about what means we use to reach the world but sometimes i think if you get too careful and you lose the somehow you start justifying inactivity right you start 
Because you can't find a perfect means, you stop investing at all. Stop praying at all. I think we need to hold up both. Be discerning, yes. But somehow we got to get it done. If there's not a perfect means, create the perfect means. Right? Get knocked down the door in order to reach the unreached. So Paul felt this personal obligation to such an extent. Did you notice it in that verse? He said, and thus save some of them. He felt so personally necessary to the task that he writes it in the first person. I must save some of them. Now, if you read the book of Romans, you know that Paul does not believe he can save anyone. Had a guy from Iran on the way here say, I've got, you got six hours with me, convert me. I said, I can't convert you, dude. <laughs> That's not my job. <laughs> Only God can do that. And Paul knew that. Okay? And so he looks at his people with such a personal responsibility that he must bring Jesus to them so Jesus can save them. He's got to be the mediator between the good news and their lostness. David Platt recently said in a sermon that he who owns the gospel owes the gospel. Paul even uses the concept of indebtedness. He's not indebted to, to God in the sense of he's trying to pay back grace. That would negate the very idea of grace. He's indebted to the world because he got in on something that he didn't deserve and no one else deserves it either. And so he felt indebted horizontally to the world because he had gotten something so freely from God. And they deserve that same chance. He's not trying to pay back grace but in his mind in his planning somehow rome somehow spain somehow israel and whatever it talk, took whatever it costs he'll he'll ask the church in rome in chapter 15 to to save him from evil men have you ever have to pray that or ask others to pray that no threat could derail him no risk was too great because the reward for that people group outweighed every risk conceivable. He would not take no for an answer because God's mercy was just too big for that. Somehow he schemed. Somehow he planned. He had to do it. So what's going to take us from, from acknowledging that there's a need on that map and action to meet that need? Personal responsibility, ownership of that need in such a way where we start taking down these black flags that I've seen for 15 years in this congregation. What's going to move us? Is it stories? Nope. It's the sufficiency of the remedy that's going to move us toward action. And that's what moved Paul toward action. So he, Paul writes Romans, not only to stir the church there, but God wants to use Romans in our hearts to stir this sense of somehow in our hearts. And if we, if we feel it, we would feel this tug between the unreached, between the people who have no access and the people who have access in our streets through us. We would feel torn between these two worlds. We would be stretched. And his eagerness was the echo effect of the gospel. Because look in verse 16, he doesn't say he was eager in verse 15 because of his calling. He says he was eager because of the gospel. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And I'm going to stop there. So what did Paul see that created certainty? He saw God's power and God's 
righteousness revealed in the gospel. So this unyielding confidence, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, sent him to the globe, to every lost corner of the globe. Why? Because he was so certain he had found the answer for the human dilemma. This unyielding confidence in the gospel generated Paul's unflinching resolve for the gospel. The reason for shame in the Bible, in the Psalms and prophets particularly, is because you've misplaced your hope. So if you anchor your hopes on something and that anchor proves untrustworthy, you're left disappointed and you're left ashamed. Russell Wilson, right? Seattle fans, they left ashamed after the Super Bowl because they misplaced their hope, right? NC State fans, I'm one of them, right? Our expectations rise because we hear we have the top 10 recruiting class. Generally, we end the season pretty disappointed. Amen? Sorry. That's just the way it is. The world we have. Uh, But in the Bible, well-placed hope generates unashamed boasting and boldness. Misplaced hope generates shame and disappointment. But, NC State fans, there was a year. We weren't ashamed. What year? 83, baby. That's right. That year, we weren't picked to beat Houston, right? They were amazing. Star-studded. We had nothing. We weren't even supposed to make the tournament. You, might, you can replay the scene, right? A heave from half court at the last second. It's picked up right by the rim by Lorenzo Charles. Dunk. Game over. But I, t- I promise you, you may not remember that, but you remember what's next. Who's, who scrambles all over the court looking for somebody to celebrate with? Jimmy V. That's right. Valvano. He goes to one end, can't find a state fan, comes back, right? to the midcourt and his the shock the awe on his face that they had done it it was amazing somehow state had won so somehow he had to celebrate i think that's that's what's going on in paul's heart somehow i gotta get this good news the horn has sounded somehow i gotta get it to rome because somehow spain's got it here but you know what my plans are to go back to jerusalem if you didn't know rome to Spain is not through Jerusalem. He's got to go back to bless his own people with the good news. Because some of you scrambling all over the world. Because God had done something. God had accomplished salvation for sinners. That is amazing. But I think we live as if the horn hadn't sounded. We live apprehensive. We live insecure. We live as if there... There's a possibility of loss. We haven't joined Paul in this unashamed posture toward the gospel. So we shrink our ambitions. Our global concern is handicapped by our lack of certainty. We worry, so we waffle and we we just live for ourselves. And you know, insecurity, that kind of insecurity, it creates another form of somehow. And you know what somehow You'll start living by, you'll start living by self-preoccupation and self-preservation. That's what insecurity does. It creates a different somehow in your heart. Somehow, I've got to secure my future through finances, through worldly satisfaction, through entertainment. We all have a somehow that governs our life. We all do. If we hear from Paul, somehow of the gospel generates this willingness to embrace sacrifice until the task is done but the other morning i think the somehow of insecurity it just it creates a lot of different things right 
In my family, the other morning we were eating breakfast. I have four kids, 10 to 5. And it starts early when they start bickering, okay? Breakfast. So they start bickering. I just throw a raisin on the table. They're like, why did you just throw a raisin on the table? Like, because that's what you're doing. All you're thinking, you're just turned inward and you're just drying out and your inward focus. And we're experiencing the shame of that in our inward focus. When, we, when we're so bored, when we buy more and more, we actually feel more and more vulnerable, don't we? That's the shame of misplaced hope. And we live like bubble-wrapped raisins, isolated from need in the world. But the gospel drives us to the world by giving us such a certain hope Not only for us, but for the world. That we can lose our life in the confidence that we're going to gain our life. Nothing but glory waited Paul. He knew that. So he gave himself to reach the nations for Christ. So that's tonight. I'm going to dig into that whole issue of certainty tonight at 6. When we come back together and consider Romans again. But why did Paul have such... Certainty. Why did he have such confidence that the gospel was the answer, both for himself and for the world? Look in verse 16. It begins in the second half. For it, that's the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we Christians, if you're new here, we believe in a message, and it's the gospel message. And in essence, it's good news. That God sent His Son to live a sinless life, but to die in sinner's place So that we could have his place and his right relationship with God while he took our penalty and he was raised so that he might prove it. That he's the only remedy for the world. So we believe that. That's what Christians believe. That our only hope is in Jesus before a righteous God. And that power, look, that is a message. But Paul says it's not just a message, it's it's the power of God. It's not about the power of God. But it brings the power of God. It doesn't meet sinners halfway. When sinners hear that message, their heart, something can happen in that moment. The wind of the Spirit can come in and create new life and give them eternal salvation. It's not merely a chance. We're not giving them a chance when we preach the gospel. They could go in that moment from life, from death to life, because of the power of the gospel. It's not God meeting sinners halfway. It's God's ability to save sinners. Last summer we were teaching my five-year-old Simeon how to swim. And I had all the three of my three other kids hanging on me. We were wrestling in the water. And I always had to have Simeon's eyes. He knew that he had to make eye contact with me before he jumped in the water. And he, he, he went down enough to feel a little insecure. So he would wait. And one, one time all three, the two boys and one girl was on Emma was on my back, and, and Simeon says, Dad, are you ready? I'm not ready. No, I got three other kids on my back. So Owens gets off my back, and he says, Simeon, I'm ready. And Simeon says, nuh-uh. Mm-mm. I want Daddy, right? Because Daddy has the strength to be able to save him if he goes under. But God is much bigger than Daddy in this illustration. Every people group can hang all over him, and he can save Everyone. He's not incapable of you hanging on him if you have never heard this. He, hang on him for salvation and he will give it to you through Jesus Christ. And he will give it to every black flag 
in this room that represents the unreached of the nations. Because what do we read in Revelation? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory from every tribe and tongue and people. And that's a lot of people. Those three billion people can come and he's got enough grace to save them all. Enough grace. The second reason Paul felt this urge of somehow is not only the power of God, but the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. Look in verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, if you have a translation that has the righteousness from God, I think they've jumped the gun. Romans definitely talks about the righteousness we've received from God and the gift of him giving us Jesus' righteousness and making us right with himself. But I think here in this context, it's talking about God's own inherent righteousness. And that righteousness is made, made uh, evident. It's, it's taken from the darkness into the light through the preaching of the gospel of his son. And if you read the Old Testament, you want to know what that concept of righteousness means. I think it's good to see God as both a judge who must judge sin for what it is, the evil that it is, If he's just, if he's righteous, he will judge sin for what it is. He will judge our disobedience for what it is. But you've also got to see in this concept of righteousness another aspect, and that's his loyalty to his promise. He's a a husband and a judge. He made a vow to his people that he's got to uphold, and he's got to uphold the standard. He can't change the rules if he's going to prove himself as righteous. So upholding justice and keeping his word, a righteous God must do both to demonstrate his righteousness. He must be true to himself. And this presents a huge problem, not just for the world, but for everyone, the world out there, but for everyone in this room and in the other rooms that are listening. If we were perfect, all would be fine. He would simply honor his justice by giving us what we deserve. And he'd keep his word because he'd bless us. Okay, that was his word. But the problem is we aren't perfect. No one is. Look in chapter 3, verse, uh, turn over to chapter 3 with me in your Bibles, verses 19 and 20. We'll just read this slowly and get into it. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So the whole world, that's everyone, is accountable to God in such a way that it renders them without excuse. There's no defense. The case is closed and it's so clear against us that we have no argument in our defense. We are sinners and we are accountable to God. And if he's righteous, he must judge our sin. That's the crisis point of the human race. If the book of Romans ends there, Every flag is black. There's no message because there's no mission. And vice versa. There's no mission because there's no message. There's no hope for the world. We're all guilty before God's wrath. And if God's wrath was in a cup, that cup must be drunk by us. Because he's a just judge. He's a righteous judge. But what will God do? This presents a conundrum of sorts. God's a righteous judge who must judge sin. But God also made a promise through Israel to bless the world through them. So how will God remain loyal to his promise and still judge our sin as sin? 
Look in verse 21. I think this but now in verse 21 has the same sense of somehow. It's not the same in the Greek, but somehow the righteousness of God has been manifested. Not to condemn us, but to save sinners. Look what he says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So that was calling into question his justice. He was passing over. Verse 26, it, this God putting Jesus forward on the cross, it was to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the somehow of God is built around this concept of propitiation. What does that mean? J.I. Packer said it meant wrath absorber, atoning sacrifice. That Jesus, when he died on the cross, absorbed all the wrath of God that sinners deserved. And I want to give you a little illustration of what this means. What this means is, if we think about a tissue, and if Jesus was just a tissue to absorb this cup that's teeming hot with the wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God that we deserve, He's just a tissue, and he gets some of the wrath of God in our place, then we'd have every reason to be insecure and worried and have no hope and not take this good news to the nations. But God put Jesus forward, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world by removing the wrath that we deserve. And he put him forward in our place and he absorbed all all think about God doing this for us who deserve this there's nothing left in the cup for us to drink that's what Jesus dying in our place means he absorbed the full weight of the wrath of God in our place so that it might demonstrate that God doesn't condone sin and in saving sinners. He condemns sin in saving sinners at the cross. And it proves that God is so utterly reliable and is worthy of all your trust that He would absorb the costly penalty that His faithfulness to His Word created. You can bank on the goodness of this God because He is righteous. He won't change the rules and He won't break His vow. He's that kind of God. He absorbs the cost of his loyalty and his justice at the cross. This is good news for the world. It's the only good news of the world. And somehow God saves sinners in a way that highlights his ability and highlights his integrity. That is good news. And that's good news for a world that's living in unrighteousness and selfish leaders and corruption and governments. And the cross is what gave Paul all this confidence to bring the good news to the world. You see, the somehow of Paul was just an echo of the somehow of God. And if you see the somehow of God, that he did that for you, 
you will start asking about your neighborhoods and, your na- and the nations that have yet to hear somehow. Somehow I have to take responsibility over this task. Somehow we have to save them by getting them the good news of the Savior. You will refuse to tolerate lostness around you. So what moves Paul from acknowledgement of need to action in need is the sufficiency of the remedy to meet the need. There's no longer any room for hesitation, only action. The risks involved in reaching that area of the world are great in today's world, but the rewards far outweigh the risks. The gospel is the only remedy for the world. The world watched anxiously, and we were actually in America when Ebola right, made its way from Africa to America and started to make its way in little pockets around the globe. Remember this last year? Wasn't it a little unsettling? Right? And for the way that Ebola works is it's, 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 it mutates itself and it, it's very contagious, so it's very hard to discover a, a sufficient vaccine. And so chemists and biologists and scientists... They waited. They hesitated to send the the current vaccine until they did more testing. And now, within the last month, they've sent the the current vaccine. And they're going to do clinical trials to see if it's sufficient to meet the need. But what made them wait? Because it was a possible remedy. There was was room left for shame, right? Because the the risks involved might have outweighed the, the rewards in taking the, the current vaccine. So they started testing and developing a better vaccine and hopefully it will come into the world. But providence, the word possible has re- been removed from the gospel. It is the only remedy for sin in the world and death in the world. The only For three billion people that have never heard it, it's the only remedy. You think about that area of the world, you can think of three billion people, and that number can be overwhelming. But when you live among them, you see that they're just like us. They're balding like me. They have fears. They have hopes. They have dreams. They're worried. They have cancer. Before we left, we were home last year for a few months and before we left we prayed with one of my friends I'll say his name is Trent for his wife who had had brain cancer we prayed for her healing and we got back to our country and I ran into him first thing that came to my mind was how's your wife how's how's she doing and he got this somber look on his face and he he looked up to heaven and he said in his language he said God please forgive her sins And I was shaking his hand and I left that conversation and my son was with me and he looked up at me and he said, what's wrong, Dad? I'll tell you what's wrong, son. That prayer will never be answered. It was too late. It was too late. And the words of Carl Henley just pierced my heart. The gospel is good news only if it gets there in time. Only. So Providence, I urge you. I, God summons us to 
the stamp somehow on our parenting? How are you raising your kids? For the world or for that world? Stamp somehow on all of our agendas. Somehow on your neighborhood. Print out a map of your neighborhood and stamp somehow on the people you don't know. I got a category in my iPhone right now, somehow. And it's every new people I meet that I haven't shared with, I put them in there. Somehow, they got to hear. Somehow, Providence. Pick a people group among the black flag and stamp somehow on it. Because we're, we're a people that are supposed to be torn. The unreached at home and the unreached abroad. That is... The gospel obligates us to. And it's a joyful obligation. Because it's the only remedy. The cup is empty. It's the only remedy for the world. Somehow, Providence, God did it. And somehow we must in His strength. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the good news. Thank you for getting it to me before it was too late. You are good. You are gracious. Compel us, Lord, I pray this afternoon and tonight that you would send us out with great urgency and great resolve. Make us new, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.